We've looked at man as the image of God. We looked at marriage. We looked at Sabbath rest. We looked at the fall. We've looked at Cain and Abel. That's taken us through the first, first four chapters of Genesis. We have now reached chapter six. I've skipped chapter five on purpose because it's a very big family tree. And I think we'll be okay. You can read it at your leisure. Just be aware, chapter five covers 1,600 years of history. One massive family tree. But we want to stick to the stories, the stories of people and their relationship with God. And so we come to chapter 6. I've called today's sermon, God's Grief, God's Grace. God's Grief and God's Grace. Let me just pray. Lord, I just pray you help me as we look at this passage in your word. Sometimes it's a confusing passage, but I pray you will bring clarity and simplicity. And more important, help us to see Jesus in this. See how it points to you and all that you have planned. But Lord, just uh, help me, I pray, that it won't be my clever words, but it'll be your wisdom coming through. And by Holy Spirit, you'll open our ears to hear the truth of what you've prepared for us this morning. So help me, Lord, I pray. Amen. Have you ever felt the world's getting worse? Yes. Stop reading the Daily Mail then. I'll always have a dig, won't I? It does feel like it sometimes though, doesn't it? But actually sometimes you find other little pockets of hope. Violent crime in this country has been on a downturn for five consecutive years. We can praise God for that. That's brilliant. Five consecutive years violent crime has been on a downturn. The statistics are getting lower and lower. Some, some of that will be attributable to new drinking laws and uh, prices of alcohol and things like that. They do attribute it to that. And also things like street pastors. You want to know more about that? Speak to Adrian and the gang. They'll tell you all about it. Making a big difference. And they affect police figures for antisocial behaviour when they're out on duty. Massive, massive difference. Things like that. There's all kinds of different projects around the country. That would be partly attributable to the fact that violent crime is on the downturn. Things are getting better. But in other ways, things are getting worse. They did a survey recently of 3,000 families in the UK and their children's exposure to pornography. The youngest was two years old. The average was four. Now, as far as I was concerned, until recently, the average first exposure to porn for a child was 11 or 12. Some reports now say eight. This one said four. That's horrendous. It's horrible. That's not just upsetting a child for an instant. That can scar them for life and or cause addiction and all sorts. It's horrendous. Is the world worsening? I don't know. Is the world changing? Definitely. That's quite obvious, isn't it? I suggest the world is changing... And it's still the same. It feels like it's worsening a lot of the time because the, the immediate impact of media around us, as soon as something happens, we hear about it, especially in other countries, not just in our country. So we get to hear about it straight away rather than just to hear a rumour later on years down the line or whatever. So things are different. The world is changing, but it's also the same. And so we're going to look at the first eight verses of chapter 6 of Genesis. Genesis 6. This is an interesting passage. I think God's got a lot to say through this this morning. So just the first eight verses. Here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So this, to many or most of us in this room, this starts leading up to the great story of the great flood. The animals went in two by two, hurrah. We forget about the multitudes of people screaming on the outside, hurrah. We just look at the animals, don't we? It's a familiar story to many of us, a great flood. What's fascinating is that every single ancient civilization has a story of a great global cataclysmic flood. The ancient Chinese, the ancient Indians, the Aztecs, the Incas, the ancient Greeks, the Babylonians, the Aborigines, they've all got stories, legends of a great flood. Some people use that to say that the Bible just jumps on as another passenger on the mythological bandwagon. I'd say it validates the event. There was an event that was so cataclysmic it affected the stories of every single civilization that has grown up since. I think that validates it. And we as Bible-believing Christians, we believe this is the true details we need to know about it. And other people have their own versions. I'll suggest the flood definitely happened probably... Some four and a half thousand BC, is it, I think? There's two problems with this particular passage that sets the scene ready for... We're going to look at the flood. John's going to talk about the flood itself next week. David will be talking about just after the flood. And then John will be just climaxing Noah's story in a few weeks' time. So we'll look at the flood a bit more detail later on. But today we're just looking at how God has set the scene. And there's two problems with this passage that we're going to look at in a minute. First of all, there's a lot of weirdness going on. Sons of God and the Nephilim. There's great conspiracy theories here that lots of people love. There's a lot of weirdness there. We're going to look at that and make sure we don't miss the point of why they get mentioned. The second thing is this. We can look through the first few chapters leading up to it and see man screwed up the world, man's horrible, man murders, man becomes ultimately evil. That's how they're described. And along comes Noah, and he was a goodie. So let's be like him. Hooray! That's not what he's saying. So I'm going to look at that as well. I'm going to look at Noah himself, what we need to learn from his story as well. First of all, let's look at the state of the world. Let's look at some of this weirdness that's going on. Sons of God. Who are they? You see them in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. This follows a pattern from the fall. You know, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree that she'd been told not to eat, she saw the fruit was attractive and she chose to take it. These sons of God, whoever they are, they saw the daughters of man were attractive and they chose to take them. It's the same same pattern. Who were they? Well, they could be descendants of Seth. He's another child of Adam and Eve's. Who are intermarrying with the daughters of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother. Again, these are all children of Adam and Eve. This could mean that these are ungodly, an ungodly line 
taking a godly line, the daughters of a godly line. Ungodly and godly intermarrying. It could mean that. Some people actually firmly believe the sons of God are angelic beings, fallen angels, who are mating with humans. A bit weird. Many, many early Christian leaders believed that was the true understanding of this passage. See, sons of God is a, is a phrasing that pops up in Job, for example, refers to angels. It's a, it's a term to describe angels. So in here, people think there must be angels. Unfortunately, or fortunately, when that phrasing is used in Job to describe angels, it's talking about righteous ones, not unrighteous ones. So again, that puts a grey gray question mark over that, doesn't it? There was lots of evidence, actually. I'm not going to list it all here because this has just become an academic lecture. There is a lot of evidence for both. Either just ungodly and godly people or believers and unbelievers, if you like, and angels and humans getting it on. Don't miss the point. This is the trouble. We can get so caught up in all the evidence and the phrasing and the original language and where we find those references elsewhere to understand are they angels, are they not? We can miss the point. Either it's improper relations between different types of humans, different lines of humans, or it's improper relations between angels and humans. Either way, God thinks he's evil. Don't miss the point. There's a reason why it's in here, and I suggest the reason isn't for us to go looking for a Loch Ness Monster. The reason here is to tell us the state of the world. Does that make sense? Both are wrong in God's eyes. It doesn't matter what it turns out to be. And then we've got the Nephilim, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. See, many now assume these are the offspring of the angels and humans. These are hybrid angel-human creatures, the giant Nephilim. However, you can also read this phrasing as where it says they are the mighty men who were of old, uh, the men of renown. We can understand it to mean they're just they're, um, valiant, men of, men of repute, valiant warriors, honourable warriors, which is a phrasing itself. It turns up in Numbers and Ezekiel. It could just mean that. Strangely enough, the word Nephilim, these people, re- reappear in Numbers chapter 13, which is many, many hundreds and hundreds of years after the flood. So if Noah and his family are the only ones that are safe from the flood, they can't be a bloodline. It must just be a type of person. Does that make sense? See, we love these kind of stories and picking apart, were they weird angel-human hybrids, were they not? I've got a friend who does a lot of Bible teaching. He's a very solid guy. I love him. He's a friend in New Frontiers. He does a lot of teaching across our churches. He firmly believes the sons of God were fallen angels and the Nephilim were their offspring. He firmly believes that. That's fine. There's lots of evidence for both. I firmly believe the opposite. The sons of God were an ungodly line and their offspring were still human. They were just big, valiant warriors. That's fine. You can believe what you like. But what we need to be careful is we love these kind of stories and these curiosities, don't we? What really happened at the Twin Towers? Uh, Bigfoot. Who shot JFK, the magic bullet? All this kind of stuff. We can, we can find it fascinating. But we can get so caught up with it, we miss the point and we spend our energies all woefully in the wrong area, spend all our time researching, trying to look out and what about this and reading books and actually God's just like, can you just look at me? That's the trouble. When Paul writes to the church, oh sorry, when Timothy writes to Timothy, he says, uh, do not devote, this is 1 Timothy 1.4, it says, do not devote yourselves to myths which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He's saying, don't 
miss the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Either way, these are angels or humans and their offspring. Either way, these relationships and their consequences, they were judged by God as despicable. The world was in a sorry state. The world was in an evil mess. We just need to be sure there is never a guarantee that what we consider honourable and valiant, which is how these men were described, the Nephilim, we need to be sure that what we consider honourable, we can't assume that God does. We always need to be sure that our understanding, our values, our standards are in line with God's. Because quite often we get that wrong, don't we? This is when we come to values and standards themselves. You see, God looked at the state of the world and it affronted his values. And it affronted his standards. We get grieved when something confronts or offends our values and standards, don't we? When we see, read, hear about children being abused, we get angry and we get upset about it. We'd like to be able to do something about it. We want to fight for them and protect them, don't we? It offends us. When people groups get downtrodden or lose their voice, it offends us. And something in us stirs, it's like, that's not fair. That's wrong. When individuals or governments take what isn't theirs, it offends us, particularly when they're taking what's ours. (laughs) Strangely enough. It offends us. We hate it and we get angry. What's been happening in Nigeria? Hundreds of schoolgirls taken. 276 are still missing. And all I want to do is buy a flipping flight ticket and go out there and break some heads. Someone on Facebook was saying, what if a thousand of us just got together, met in Nigeria and went looking for them? It would probably cause more problems. But, but, but there is something in us that's like, this isn't right. How do their parents feel? How do those girls feel? Where are they and what have they been put into? It's horrible and it offends us. And we hate it and we get angry. It's the same for God. He has every right to see something that offends him and get angry and do something about it. Especially when his values and his standards are a lot, lot, lot higher than ours. And he looked on this state of this world and he saw it was evil and he made a decision. It feels like an impulsive decision, doesn't it? He looked, saw it as evil, go, right, I'm going to send a flood, where's Noah? It feels quite quick, doesn't it? Actually, this decision was a thousand years in the making. How do I know that? Noah's granddad is called Methuselah. And he's well known as the oldest man who's ever walked on this planet. He died at the age of 969. You see him at just the end of chapter 5 in that family tree I just mentioned. Methuselah is Noah's granddad. Died at 969. His name means his death shall bring judgment. When he dies, judgment will come. He was given that name 969 years before the flood came. If you look at the numbers in chapter 5 and how old Noah was when the flood came, you will discover that Methuselah died in the year of the flood. 969 years before the flood arrived, God prompted Methuselah's dad to prophesy through his newborn baby's name that a flood will come when he dies. 
nearly a thousand years before it happened. This was not an impulsive decision. God knew exactly what he was doing and he had the right things in place and his timing is not our timing. So we can get upset, we can look at the world, think it's worsening, we can look at suffering out there and go, why doesn't God do something? We need to understand that his timing is not our timing. He saw an evil world and it was a thousand years later that something happened because of his grace, because of his patience. Why doesn't God do something about suffering? He did. Would you like him to do that again? Would you like him to wipe out 99.999% recurring of humanity in one hit? Would you like that? When there's no guarantee you're going to be the little bit left behind. (laughs) Because even then, sin is still present in this planet today. When Noah and his family, who were considered righteous, were the only ones safe, sin was still present in them. That's why it's still here. We're all descendants of Noah, do you know that? Isn't that mad? Would you like God to do this again? Wipe out everything you know on this planet? Because no, what he's done, his timing is not our timing. He has produced a new way, a new hope. And we see an echo of that in Noah. So let's look at this man, Noah. See, the trouble is, and I mentioned this at the beginning, we can hear the Sunday school story of Noah. God saw that the world was really evil and man was horrible to each other. Horrible. But there was Noah. He was a good man. So God put him and his family in an ark that he asked him to build, gave him all the animals, and they were safe. So all we need to do is be good like Noah and we'll be okay. So be a goodie. No. Because then it's all about works, isn't it? It's all about us trying harder. It doesn't work. That's not what the Bible stands for. See, look at verse 12 of chapter 6. I'm going to skip into John's bit for next week. Sorry, John. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh. No exceptions. Noah and his family are included. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. See, we need to understand, when verse 8 says, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord, we need to understand that Noah did not find favour because he was righteous. He was righteous because he found God's favour. Does that make sense? Big difference. See, I went to see the Noah film recently that came out of the cinema. Caused a bit of a debate, a bit of a ruckus on the internet. Some Christians getting upset about it. I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I like the, the, the guy who made it, Darren Aronofsky. I like his films. His previous one is one of my favourites. There's a lot of weirdness in his films, but you know me. I like that. I really liked it. If you want to go and see a big cinema version of what's in the Bible, don't go and watch it because you won't find it. It draws in from Christian tradition, from the Bible, from Jewish tradition, from Midrash, from Gnosticism, Kabbalah. He draws in from different... He's fascinated by mysticism and spirituality, myths and legends. And he just drew them all together, put them in a big melting pot and came up with a great big action fantasy story. There's fallen angels that are big rock creatures that help him build the ark and stuff. Don't go... If you want to see a Bible version, you won't see it. But there's echoes in there. I loved it. And in fact, how it depicts the flood is terrifying. It's fascinating. 
But there was one scene that I loved. And it's one of the smaller scenes, not the big action bits. See, Noah is building his ark with his family and these fallen ones that are helping him. And while they're building the ark, the descendants of Cain, they get the ump. And they sense something is happening and they want a piece of the action. And they start surrounding the site, the building site, the dry dock, if you like. And they have a big camp. And one night, Noah goes to check out what this camp is like. And he goes skulking around with the hood up in the middle of the night. He goes into this camp to see what it's like. And it's a horror sight. It's horrendous. How they treat each other. There are people giving away their children for food. Not giving away themselves to be stuck in a cage so their children have food. They're giving away their kids so they get food. The way they treat each other is horrendous. It's pure evil in this camp. And while he's there, Noah sees a man scavenging for food on the other side. And this other man looks up and he's got his, he's got his Noah's face. He sees his own face on this man and he's terrified and he runs back to his wife and he says, I'm no different. I'm the same as them. I don't know why God's chosen me, but God's chosen me, but I don't deserve it. I'm just as evil as they are. He saw himself in them and I thought it was fascinating. And there is grace. When we use that word, we're talking about an undeserved favour, a love that pays the price. You don't have to extend grace, to extend love to anyone when they haven't deserved it or earned it, but you still do anyway. That is grace. And that's what God has done for Noah. He chose him anyway because he chose to for no other reason. See, there's a thing that's been cropping up in coffee shops recently called suspended coffees. Have you heard about these? It actually started in Naples 100 years ago, but it's just become more of a recent thing in modern coffee shops. It's gradually spreading around the world, where if you go and buy a coffee, you can ask to pay for a suspended coffee as well, and they'll charge you for an extra coffee that doesn't actually exist at that time. And people who are particularly homeless, people who are destitute, they can go in and go, have you got any suspended coffees on the book? Yeah, yeah, someone just paid for one. I'll give them a coffee. You've already paid for someone you don't know. I love that idea. I think it's brilliant. What if... You went in there, bought your own coffee, and said, like a suspended coffee, please. They go, okay, put it on the tab, charge you. And you go, but make sure you only give that to a white person. Or, it's horrendous, isn't it? Make sure you only give it to a pretty girl. Make sure you only give it to someone who looks like they've got potential to get themselves off the streets. As soon as you put any kind of contract on it, that's no longer grace, is it? You could be bigging yourself up, going, see, I've helped someone out, that a stranger. Yeah, but you've put a contract in place that they've got to earn it. Or they've got to be worthy of it in your eyes. That's not grace. Grace is suspended coffee, whoever comes through that door next. That's grace. And God is treating Noah in the same way. Noah didn't earn it. It's not about works. And so, let's reread that verse 8. When it says, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. We need to reread that. And some commentators suggest that actually the original wording actually has got a bit misconstrued because of the way it ends up being written. In our language, we hear it as that. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Actually, the original understanding of this should be God's grace found Noah. Big difference. It's only in God's grace that we can depend. Nothing we've done, nothing we've earned. Nothing we've willed. Would you like to turn to chapter 24 of Matthew? Matthew 24. 
Jesus talks about Noah. And he actually demonstrates that Noah is a signpost to something greater. Matthew 24, verse 37. He's talking about the end times. Verse 37, he says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Of man. Jesus says there's a greater judgment coming. You want God to deal with suffering? In his timing, he's got it all planned. And Jesus says, just as much as those people did not earn God's grace because they couldn't, they were swept away in judgment. And he said, a greater judgment is coming. Where do you stand? See, outside his grace, outside his favour, we are cursed. We are under judgment. Remember, we spoke about that two weeks ago. There was a great curse on this planet because of the sin that we brought into this world, us usurping God from his throne and deciding we should be on it. That's what we do. And under that judgment, there is no hope because we can't earn our way out of it. But, that but of Genesis 6, but Noah found God's favour, but God's grace found Noah, that echoes an even bigger but in Ephesians chapter 2. It's one of my favourite words in the Bible, the word but. Ephesians chapter 2. But God's grace found Noah. What about us? Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, evil man, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God's grace found Noah, but God's grace can find you. Not by anything you've done, not by how you look, not even by how you treat others, but simply because he chooses to love you. The world is in the same sorry state as it was back then. We talk about Nigeria, you look at Syria, still going on. Look at the UK. Look in your own heart, I look in my heart. Every single day I still see something that makes me wince in my heart. I can't get rid of that on my own. 43 years later I'm still failing. That's the point. God sees what is in our hearts. God sees the consequences of it across our nation and across the world, and he grieves. It hurts him, it breaks his heart, and he gets angry and he gets upset. But, that great but. Other faiths will say there is no judgment coming, don't worry. Judgment? No, you're fine. Or other faiths say there is judgment coming, but you can do something about it. All you need to do is try harder or be better. Be kinder, be nicer, do some penance, do some sacrifices. The Bible says judgment is coming. It's greater than we've ever seen before. It'll be the final judgment and your only hope is Jesus. See, Noah, his name means rest. And he lived up to that name. 
because of God. God didn't remove him from the storm that was coming, but he gave him rest within it, in the ark. I remember my art teacher at school was telling me about his favourite painting was a winner of a competition, and it was called Peace. And there were loads of people went in for the competition. They're doing rainbows and sunsets and still lakes like duck ponds and little landscape or someone snoozing on a sofa. People at peace. But the one that won was a picture of a storm. It's a dark night. It's rainy. It's windy. It's a massive great storm. And in the tree in the middle is a little hollow. And inside the little hollow is a bird at peace. That's Noah. He found rest in the storm, not being removed from the storm. And when God sees the state of this world, there is a judgment over it, and the greater judgment is coming, and the only find we will find rest is in Jesus. He says, come to me, all you, who are, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. He's our great Noah. It's not about us being Noah and getting on an ark, earning our way on an ark, building it, shutting the door. It's about Jesus is our Noah, and he welcomes us in as his family with him to find peace in the storm and freedom from the great judgment to come. Have you jumped on board? Because that grace is available to you. You don't need to earn it. He's earned it for you. The promise is available. His hands are outreached and all you need to do is take it. Noah didn't know why he was chosen other than the fact that God chose to choose him. And he chooses to choose you now. All you need to do is accept it. We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing Grace is Not Earned. And as we sing this song, let's celebrate, let's find delight, let's find joy in the grace that God has extended to us. For no reason other than the fact that he chose to. Let's sing and then we'll pray. Would you like to-